He was once invited to lunch at a very smart restaurant, very smart. He arrived early and he waited in the foyer for his host. And standing opposite him was a young man who looked vaguely familiar. And he said he just kind of was looking at him out of the corner of his eye. And this young man was sort of looking at him out of the corner of his eye. And nobody said anything. It was a bit of an awkward silence. For five minutes, neither of them said a word. Although the young man sort of looked as if he was expecting to be spoken to. And it was, Rico just couldn't remember who he was, so he said nothing. And it was only as the young man left that his identity was revealed. He was Prince William. (laughs) Different context. The future king of England. True story. Rico said, I saw my future king, but I didn't take the opportunity to relate to him. Another story. Three young men jumped on a bus in Detroit in the 1930s. A lone man was sitting at the back, on his own, minding his own business, and they tried to pick a fight with him. They insulted him. He didn't respond. They provoked and abused him. Still, he said nothing. And when the bus stopped, the stranger stood up, and they realized he was much bigger than he'd looked from his seated position. And he walked slowly past these young men, and he reached into his pocket and handed them a business card. And on the card it said, Joe Lewis... Boxer. (laughs) They had just tried to pick a fight with the greatest heavyweight champion of all time. They were in the presence of greatness, but they didn't know it, and so they didn't respond appropriately. Now, these two stories about the king and the boxer help us to get what Mark's gospel is teaching us today. In this book, Mark is unfolding a story. He's painting a picture for us of Jesus Christ. And in the first half of the book, say the first eight chapters or so, Mark is particularly concerned with the question of Jesus' identity. Who is this? Everybody's asking it. Everyone's been asking it one way or another. Who is this? But we find here that even those nearest and dearest to Jesus, his chosen 12 disciples, still haven't quite got it. What we see today is that you can know, you can really know a lot about Jesus, but still miss who he really is. You can even be in the presence of Jesus and fail to recognize him and respond appropriately. Because what we see in the text that Lebanon just read is the greatness and the majesty of Jesus Christ. He feeds 5,000 men with a packed lunch. He walks on deep water across a huge lake. By any standard, these are you know, extraordinary actions, miracles. But in the context of the Bible, they are not just miracles. They are also signs of deity. Only God can do such things in the Bible. And so we are meant to see the deity of Jesus here. Not just his power, but his deity. He is God in the flesh. But in this passage, we also are meant to learn from the response of the disciples. They're a picture of us, I think. These things have been written down for our benefit as examples to us and warnings to us. And here's what we see. Even though the disciples have been with Jesus, they know him, they've seen his great power and miracles many times, even so, they still fail to trust him. They still need to grow in their faith, their trust in him. And when faced with an impossible circumstance that they can't influence or control, they doubt. And when things happen in life that they can't comprehend, they doubt. 
They were fine with Jesus as long as they could understand him. But it only took them so far, and when circumstances changed, their confidence drained away. And you know, we're just like them. We have to learn from this. That's why this passage, I believe, is the most important thing you could think about this week. The most important thing you could think about this week. You know, a sermon takes less time to preach than a single episode of a typical TV series. And some people binge watch them. And if you come to church once on Sunday, you only get one shot at this. The most important thing we can think about this week. Because if we can grip this, we can face anything. But if we fail to grasp who Jesus really is, our lives are like a house of cards. On holiday a couple of years ago, my son, Ted, built a house of cards. It was beautiful. But one little breeze and that house (laughs) collapses. Let's make sure we are attentive to what God is saying to us today through his word and not miss the majesty and the greatness of Jesus Christ. We learn two things, and I've got two main points. Jesus is the shepherd king, and Jesus is the lord of the storm. And you put them together and you've got the lord is my shepherd. The shepherd king and the lord of the storm. And I want to look at those two things in turn. So firstly, the shepherd king, verses 30 to 44. Verse 30 says the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. And you might remember from last week um, that verse 30 is kind of the, the end of a sandwich structure that Mark has used from the beginning of chapter 6 to this point. So the sandwich was the disciples were sent out on a mission and then there was the story of John the Baptist and the terrible incidents that led to his beheading and then the disciples come back to Jesus. And that sandwich was a structure showing us about mission, following Jesus on mission, leads to death. Mission is tied to martyrdom. The main point, going on mission with Jesus means dying to yourself. But that is the path to glory. But verse 30 is also like a hinge because it looks back to the previous sandwich, but it also looks forward to what's coming next because of the successful work of these disciples. Jesus' mission has now been multiplied. There's many more people coming. There's a great commotion. Verse 31, so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat. There's no guaranteed lunch hour on Jesus' team. You might have to skip lunch. (laughs) And there they are. They're serving all these people. And this is what fruitful ministry looks like. It just gets more and more. It's like these people who work at the well. The well is going so well that now the staff don't have time to eat. (laughs) But Jesus sees this and he's caring compassionate and thoughtful. Look what he says. He sees the strain on the guys, so he calls them to a mini retreat. Verse 31. Now, these words are so amazing. I was reflecting on this last night. We could have spent all our time today just on this one sentence. Come away with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Can you see how we could have spent all our time on just that sentence? Come away with me. Come away with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. What a, what a tender 
thing to say, and I don't want to rush over that. Notice here, the Lord Jesus does not summon us to overwork and burn out. He doesn't summon us to that. Being committed to Jesus Christ is firstly about being with him and not just doing stuff for him. Come away with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Friends, does your Christian service balance times of rest, times of prayer, times of quiet communion with Jesus Christ along with hard work? So hard for us to get the balance right. Notice the heart that Jesus has for the disciples. He looks around and sees them and he says, hey, come away. There's loads of needs here, but you come away with me to a quiet place, get rest. That is the same heart that Jesus Christ has for you. Do you know that? Now, here's an observation from me. I'm still the new boy, so I can sort of make these observations from time to time. King's Church, Chesington, has a lot of hardworking people people who work really hard during the day raising a family or working a day job people who serve their family and their community and people who serve really faithfully in church I can see that that I think is one reason why God has blessed this church and it's been so fruitful for many many years it is a sign of God's grace to us as a church that we are hardworking. Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15 have often intrigued me. He said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I worked harder than all of them, all the other apostles. He says, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. It's interesting. See how understanding God's grace and working hard can go together. And yet, life is so busy, isn't it? The demands of life and Christian service are never-ending. You don't have enough hours in the day. You feel, some of you feel like you just can't stop and breathe. Exhausted. Getting back on the hamster wheel. You don't want to get out of bed in the morning. Oh, just let me stay and hide under the duvet a bit longer. You're getting to the point where you're just so weary of it all. Is that someone here? The author Tim Chester wrote a book called The Busy Christian's Guide to Busyness. A bunch of people recommended it to me. and I was too busy to read it for quite a long time. But in the end, I did. And in the book, he described some Christians who confessed that they were so weary that they fantasized about being hospitalized. Have you ever done that? They actually fantasized about being sent to hospital, not for anything life-threatening, just a serious medical condition that meant they had to be confined to a bed and told to do nothing and be waited on hand and foot for a few weeks. <laughs> now look, is that you or are you close to that? Is it healthy? Notice the, the balance here. Jesus does keep on with the ministry. The disciples don't quit 
and leave the work to someone else. But again, remember those words. Come away with me by yourselves to a quiet place and have some rest. Wonderful heart of Jesus. So they, they obey him and they get in the boat again and they go off to a solitary place far away from people, but something crazy happens Many people see them, and they figure out where they're going to go. And so they go over land, and they run, and they, get, they tell everyone, and they're all running, and they try and get to this place so that they get to the place even before the boat does. So Jesus and the disciples come, and by verse 34, a large crowd has gathered. And, you know, we later learn that there are 5,000 men, plus women and children, presumably. So that is a large crowd, isn't it? That's a very big crowd. And sometimes, you know, at the end of a long day, my wife and I will sometimes just look at each other and just sort of say, I'm done. I just have no more to give today. I've got no more energy. I feel like a lemon that's been squeezed too many times. Nothing left in the tank. And I'm sure there's, there's some of that feeling in this boat, don't you? And then they go around the corner and they see the crowd on the shore and they're like, oh, no. Just look at that ruddy crowd. How did they get there? I wonder if some of the disciples are privately thinking, you know, why don't we pretend that we weren't really going there and just turn the boat around and go somewhere else? I mean, it doesn't say that, but you could imagine that that might have been (laughs) the response. But how striking is Jesus' response in verse 34? He says, he, he landed and saw the large crowd and he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now this word compassion in the New Testament is only used of Jesus himself and it's used by Jesus in two stories. The story of the good Samaritan, remember him? He saw the man lying in the ditch, beaten and broken and he had compassion on him. And the story of the prodigal sons, the son who went off to a far country and squandered his father's fortune And when he came back, the father saw him from a distance and he had compassion and ran to him. It's the only time this word is used is Jesus himself and those two occurrences, the good Samaritan and the the good father. So here is this word. And the word means, compassion means being moved to the core of your being. And it actually refers to your tummy. And if you see someone and you're so moved by their plight and their, their misery and it's it actually makes you squirrely. Something happens inside. It's, it's coming out. It's visceral, is the word. In your gut, that's what it means. Jesus sees the people, and he actually is, is stirred to compassion. He's moved, physically moved to compassion. Why is he so moved? Answer, because he sees they are like sheep with no shepherd. That means they are helpless, vulnerable, they're in danger, they're likely to go astray and maybe get harmed, they're foolish. And you know, the Bible says, we are sheep. We are sheep. It's not a flattering description, is it? Have you ever played the animal game? I played this game once, there was a bunch of male students and two young ladies, and they said, we're going to play the animal game, and it was at this Christian center and we're all sitting around this table and they, what the game is that they say you remind me of this animal and everybody has to guess who it is and so one guy they said um, he's, he's like a wolf 
and they guessed it was this chap. And they went around the, the room. One guy, they said he was like a lemur. And he actually was. Just, it was the stripy tail that gave him away. And they came to me and they said, is it two young girls? That made it worse. They're like a panda. Must have been those shoots I was eating. Panda. But I tell you what, I'd rather be a panda than a sheep. Imagine people said, you know, you remind me of a sheep. Yeah. It's not a flattering description. I don't like to be thought of as a sheep. If I had to choose an animal, I probably would favor a lion, not a sheep. But that's what we are, according to the Bible. And we're not going to move on from this phrase too quickly because it's a reference here to the Old Testament, to the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 27. God's people have been led by Moses, you remember, the prince of Egypt. Under God, he led them out. God led the people out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. They came out with signs and wonders. God opened the Red Sea. They went through it on dry land. The sea closed back in. Pharaoh's army was destroyed. It was a new creation. God's people being brought out. And Moses was the leader. And he led them all through the wilderness years of wandering and disobedience when they were a nomad people. For 40 years, Moses led them like a shepherd in the desert. And remember, Moses' career after he killed the Egyptian, before he was called back, was a shepherd. So he knew how to do it. Moses was a shepherd, the shepherd of God's people. And in Numbers chapter 27, it says this. Moses said to the Lord God, May the Lord, the God who gives breath to all living things, appoint someone over this community to go out and come in before them. One who will lead them out and bring them in so that the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. God's people could be like sheep without a shepherd, without a leader who is a strong shepherd. These people lack the leadership that they desperately need, so they're like a ship with no captain and no rudder. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus here shows himself to be the good shepherd, doesn't he? They were like sheep without a shepherd, by his compassion from the people, for the people. So he gives them what they really, really need. And what do they need in the passage? This is slightly a trick question. Don't you hate it when preachers do that? What do they really, really need? You can shout out. Thank you, Claire. So he began teaching them many things teaching it's not food first of all they need wisdom they need the truth they need instruction to live by that's what we need if we're going to grow and mature as human beings is the words of God the word of Jesus so his primary purpose here is to teach but the teaching session goes on late because there's many things that need to be taught and so there is a becomes a clear practical need as well it's a need for food because they've all run remember to this remote place and there's no supermarket not even a Tesco Express not even a little corner shop and so they, they're actually starving and notice Jesus uses this opportunity to teach as well because what he now does is teach the disciples so verse 35 it's late in the day and the disciples come and they say this is a really remote place Lord it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Now, here's Jesus' teaching strategy. 
This is like the swimming instructor who, having taught the class how to swim, now throw, throws somebody in the deep end. And they're going, oh, armbands. You give them something to eat, he says. What? You. You, team, remember, I've been training you. You now go and give them something to eat. And they say, that would take more than six months' wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? So he continues to teach them. How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And they find out, and they've got five. And two fish. This is all they had in the boat. So what is he doing? He's teaching them that this is an impossible situation. So where do you go when you're in an impossible situation? Well, you should go to Jesus. But what do they do? They don't know what to do. So Jesus tells them, make all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties and taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, Jesus gives thanks and breaks the loaves and he distrib- the disciples distribute them to the people. And as it's being passed around, it doesn't run out. Somehow, Jesus is multiplying the small amount and they divide the fish as well and they all eat and they are all satisfied. It is a full meal. And in fact, there even is leftovers because they pick up 12, notice, basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. And the number, just to underline it, of men who had eaten was 5,000. Easy to count because they're in groups of 50 and 100. Okay, what's going on here? It is an impossible situation, isn't it? You can't do, nobody can do this. But Jesus wants to, tra- to challenge and, and to, to provoke the disciples to think, where is your trust? Where are you, do you reach out to in an impossible situation? And the miracle here is, has echoes of what God did in the wilderness for his people by feeding them with bread in the desert. It was called manna. And manna means, what is it? God alone can do this. And again, we welcome skeptics and people who are seeking and people who are inquiring into Christianity. I know this is hard to believe. And and I just want to encourage you that it was hard for them to believe too. This sort of thing doesn't happen every day in the Bible. They couldn't believe it. And Jesus is calling them and you to put your trust in one who can do greater things than you can ask or imagine. Because only God can do this. The creator who made wheat and grain and sun and rain and the things that become bread, the creator who made those things can make bread out of nothing. So Jesus is providing miracle bread in the wilderness. He's the new Moses, the leader of God's people. There are 12 basketfuls There were 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus has fed the people. He's the new Moses. But there's more. He's the shepherd of Israel, feeding his sheep, and he's the good shepherd. Remember the most famous, probably the most famous psalm in the Bible. I think everybody knows it. The Lord's my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in, what? Green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Only Mark's gospel says that there's green grass. What a funny little detail. 
Mark wants to remind us about Psalm 23. The good shepherd is now here. And he's the one who calls you away with himself on your own to a quiet place to rest. And he's the one that can take you to the green pastures and feed your soul. Everyone ate and was satisfied. Now remember how we started today. You can be in the presence of your future king and not realize it. You can be in the presence of great power and greatness and not realize it. And what do we learn here about the identity of Jesus Christ is he is the compassionate good shepherd who loves his sheep and he has all the resources and the strength to provide what we need combined with the compassion and care to want to provide it. What a Lord he is. So the Lord is my shepherd. We are called to faith So faith in his ability to provide even in the face of impossible circumstances. That's what the first story is about, the shepherd king, calling us to believe in him in spite of impossible circumstances. And so immediately we go to the second story, and here's another impossible thing, the Lord of the storm. Here we are, it starts in verse 45, and it's Jesus has made the disciples go ahead. They've got in the boat, and he waits behind. He's going to pray on the mountainside, praying all night, and later in the night, The boats only made it to the middle of the lake because the wind is so strong and it's against them. And these men are exhausted and they're pulling on these oars and this boat is not going very far. They are straining at the oars. The wind is against them. And after a great deal of time, they, shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake itself. He was about to, now this is very important, he was about to pass them by But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. And he speaks, take courage. I am. Do not be afraid. And again, this is a subtle claim, a subtle revelation that Jesus is God in the flesh. If you want to turn to the book of Job... We can see the background behind some of these verses. If you don't want to, by the way, I'll just read it out for you. But if you've got the church Bible, we're on page 515. Page 515, Job chapter 9. Really, really interesting background to these verses. Job is talking about God. You know, his wisdom is profound. His power is vast. He moves mountains without their knowing it. He overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place. He speaks to the sun. And then Job says in in Job 9 verse 8, look at the words, he alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. The same language that's used of Jesus in Mark 6. He treads on the waves of the sea. And then in verse 11, again speaking of God, when he passes me, I cannot see him. What is this doing? This is an account, a a description of the incomparable power and majesty of the living God. He alone can walk on the sea. And the phrase that he passes by is a phrase that's used when God reveals himself. Theologians call it a theophany, a revelation of God, God appearing. Exodus chapter 33, the Lord appeared and he passed by and revealed his name to Moses. 
And we could go to Psalm 77, verse 16 to 20, which joins walking on water with leading the flock. And if that wasn't enough, Jesus here uses this phrase, I am, which is easily overlooked in the English, but it's the very phrase used by God when he reveals his name to Moses in Exodus 3. I am, the one who walks on the waves of the sea, the one who passes by. You see, all of these hints here are saying to us, the one who stands in front of these disciples is no other than God himself, the living God in the form of a man. And Jesus comes to them in order to pass by them to show them his glory and strength for their comfort. But they can't receive it. Just can't believe it. So he has to get in the boat and he calms the storm again. But what is their response? And this is quite sobering, I think. Look at verse 51. He climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down and they were completely amazed again. And remember what I said last week? Being amazed in the book of Mark is not a good thing. My wife and I often tell the story about sitting, having lunch one time and somebody came and looked at our children and said to us, wow, you two produce really good-looking kids. <laughs> you know what? Being amazed is not a good thing in that context. Oh, thank you. Why are they so amazed? Verse 52, for they had not understood about the loaves. <laughs> Their hearts were hardened. What is the point Mark is making? He's making us a point here for us about the nature of unbelief. If your heart is hardened, can't believe, you still will not believe even if somebody feeds 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread. You still won't believe. And then they walk on water. You can't believe anything who they really are. So you have, you're amazed and you actually shrink back. Your heart is hardened. Can you believe these guys? After all they've seen... How could these disciples see so much about Jesus in their lives and yet still fail to trust him? How foolish they were. How short-sighted. How lacking in faith, trust. And you know what? We would never be like that, would we? Or would we? Have you learned, dear friends, that Jesus Christ can be trusted in every situation? even impossible circumstances. One of the lessons the disciples are written for, I think, is that this kind of trust takes time to develop. And Jesus is leading us, like a shepherd, to greater and greater trust in him over time. So don't be too hard on yourself if you haven't got there yet. The point is, you're a disciple too. And he keeps leading you to greater and greater trust. And the thing is, sheep don't like being led. They don't understand what's happening to them, do they? There's a shepherd who's also a Bible commentator called Douglas Macmillan, Scottish man. He, he writes about rescuing a lost sheep because he'd actually done it. He said, even when sheep are found... It's very difficult to round them up and bring them home unless you have a dog to scare them. The lost sheep rushes to and fro. When you find it, you must seize it, cast it down, tie its forelegs together and its hind legs together and put it over your shoulders and carry it home. <laughs> sheep don't want to be rescued. 
They don't like being led. And we are like sheep, friends. We are foolish and helpless, so we need to learn how to trust, and it takes time. In fact, it takes your whole lifetime. The surprising command, you give them something to eat, is like the swimming coach pushing the learner into the deep end of the pool. You'll never learn to swim if you stay in the baby pool, will you? But you remember that moment where you, you got to the point in the pool and you couldn't touch the bottom? Oh! And when Jesus appears in the dark of the night, walking on the water, he's unveiling his divine nature. He's showing them who he really is. And when you see that, it can be terrifying. He is not a tame lion. Why is it that we only learn to trust Jesus when we are thrust into situations where we are out of our depth? But I think that's the only time we learn. Why is it that we only learn to trust Jesus more in a storm by going through storms? I don't know why. But it seems to me that we only really behold Jesus for who he is when we get into the boat and go out. You only see him as you trust and follow him. In the greatest storm of life, you will see him more. And you will be changed by it. That is the place where faith is forged. James Edwards, Bible commentator, says, It is in the midst of storms, hardships, and adversities that Jesus reveals himself to the disciples. You can summarize our passage today in a single command. Cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Since Jesus is a shepherd, he cares. And it is his job to, to heal the broken, find the lost, strengthen the weak. And since Jesus is also God, the Lord, the all-powerful one, he will succeed. The Lord is my shepherd. You see how we get that from this passage? Shepherd, king, the lord of the storm. Therefore, I want to give you this to think about. We will be freed from anxiety only as far as we are dis disciplined to remember and apply his love to our situation. We will be freed from our anxiety only as far as we remember and apply his love and care and power to our situation and our experience. And you have to stop and do that in the moment, friends. It's all very well talking about this on Sunday morning and singing and punching your friend in the face while you're singing, right? That's all great on Sunday morning, but on Monday morning, you'll be back in the impossible situation, Wednesday night, Friday lunchtime. You're back in the impossible situation. You have to, you're anxious. You will only be freed from that the more that you experience the love and care of Jesus Christ in the moment and know his power. I'll give you an example. Friends of ours called Alex and Betsy, I won't say their surname, they work in a sensitive situation, another part of the world, in Southeast Asia. They felt called to serve the Church of Jesus Christ in this country, in Southeast Asia. And they worked very long and hard time to get there. Alex is a very bright man, very, very bright. And he used his academic gifts to come to England and study at Oxford University. He got a PhD with one of the leading scholars in the New Testament, and he wanted to be a man who could train others in the word. And they moved to Southeast Asia for life. 
the long term. They, these are people who are putting it all on the line. They're laying down their career for Jesus Christ. And they took four children. Now, if you've got four children and you've worked really hard and you've been called and gone to Southeast Asia, don't you think that life should be really easy from then on? And that God would then bless you all the time? I mean, surely that would, should, should work like that, shouldn't it? No, it doesn't work like that. Betsy had a stroke. She was a young mum. They didn't have hospital care where they were. They flew to Singapore. Unfortunately, the doctors were not able to determine what caused it. And this was all the more unsettling because she was young and had no known risk factors. An ischemic stroke. This is what they wrote. Betsy was anxious to return to me and our children, having been away for 11 days. Upon returning home, her alarming symptoms have persisted. She continues to experience intermittent faintness, dizziness, numbness, tingling, and waves of full-body panic. Many of these sensations preceded her stroke, and so she frequently feels as if she's just about to have another one. The cause of the symptoms is unknown, and we wonder whether she is reacting to some medications. One thing is certain, it is very risky for Betsy to remain here right now. Lord, what are you doing? How did they respond to this? Last paragraph in the letter. Despite this trial, we have so very much for which to be thankful. We are thankful that Betsy's stroke wasn't more severe and that we have access to high-quality medical care. We are thankful for loving family and friends to walk with us in these dark days. We are thankful for the promise that our lives are hidden with Christ in God, Colossians 3, that no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand, John 10, and that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. While we are wrestling with what seems like a strange turn of providence, we remain confident that he has a good plan for our lives. His kingdom purposes cannot be thwarted. Together with you in the good fight of faith, Alex. Now that's genuine. He's not just putting it on. Do you see how he applied what they know about Jesus to the current situation, which is impossible. And you know, friends, Jesus Christ knows you better than you know yourself. He knows your needs. He knows your heart better than you know your own needs and your own heart. And Jesus Christ loves you more than you love yourself. And he's committed to you more than anyone else. He's that committed. And in John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's how much he cares. Look at the cross and cast your anxiety there. And learn to sing with the words of a German songwriter, 17th century, Samuel Rodegast. Whate'er my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet am I not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall, and so to him I leave it all.
The Lord is our shepherd. Let's pray. Gracious God, we're so thankful to you for showing us your son, Jesus. We love him. And we ask you now, help us to trust him. Amen.